0: My name is Andrew Tate, and this is season one, episode five of Let's Not Meet a True Horror Podcast. A couple of months ago, I was at home at a time I'm usually not. At the time, I had classes every single day at 2pm except for Friday, the day this happened. Now, I was lucky. Incredibly lucky. I was getting in the kitchen maybe an hour after getting home because I had been lazy, too lazy, to go make my lunch straight away after getting home. My kitchen counter is in a U-shape, one side and the bottom being on two of the walls and the other being in the middle of the kitchen, the windows being where the accent is. So I was in the inside of the U, and I hear my window being opened. Now I had my blinds opened maybe 20 centimeters, and one window was opened maybe 10 centimeters. They won't open any more than that because we have sticks to prevent it and the other side was supposedly locked closed. The window that was open was the one that I had locked. I screamed loud and yelled, get out, as I see a man laying on the floor with his head, arms, and torso inside my house and his legs outside. He starts leaving, looks straight at me, and asks, can I have some figs? In my garden, I have a fig tree, and this was right around the time when they were good to eat. Me, panicking, continued yelling, No! No! The man stops exiting, and looks at me, almost offended, and asks, No? To get him out, my panicked mind just said, Yes, take them, but don't take too many because there are very few on the tree my panicked brain worked in a weird way. He exited. I closed all of my blinds and called the police. As far as I know, they didn't find him, but they did make sure he was nowhere near my house. The thing is, I'm a 17-year-old girl. My only advantage in this situation was that I saw him whilst he was getting in. If I'd been anywhere else in the house, he would have gotten inside. So crazy, fig-obsessed man, let's not meet. I lived in Japan for around 10 months a couple of years back as part of a study abroad program as my placement year for university. I lived in Hiroshima, and pretty much every Japanese person I met was exactly how you would expect them, generous and respectful. All except this one old lady who just so happened to live in the apartment next to mine. It was about a month after I had been in Japan when our group decided to go to a sake festival. As men of fine taste and culture, we sampled many different kinds of sake from all over Japan and got rode off beyond belief. Then we all got on the train back home to our apartments. I can't remember shit all apart from calling my girlfriend at the time and passing out on my futon. Normal stuff. Skip to 6am the next morning when my loud as fuck doorbell wakes me up. Keep in mind, my apartment is extremely small, so the noise is very loud. I check the time, and I'm confused as anything, but assume that it's just my friend from downstairs who wants to talk about last night. I look through the peephole and my door, and I see a police officer standing there. First thought that goes through my head is, "'Taylor, what the fuck did you do when you were drunk last night?' I talk to the police officer using a translation app, and he basically tells me that there's been a noise complaint. Strange, considering the fact that all I did was make a phone call and fall asleep. Anyway, the guy sees how confused I am and can tell that there must have been a mistake and leaves. I'm honestly still drunk and really confused, but the day carries on as normal. The next morning, 6am, the doorbell rings. I'm already kind of assuming what it was going to be at this time. And what do I see through the people? Two police officers. Same conversation goes down, and I convince them that there's been no noise. I literally walk them into my apartment to show them how I fell asleep watching Netflix. They tell me at this point it's the neighbor, who I've never met, that is making complaints. At this point, I think... Maybe she's just a bitch, or she's racist. I asked the guy at my university who takes care of all the foreign students about this, and he tells me that I'm going to be moving apartments, going to a new room on a different floor. I'm pretty pissed because I just settled into my new space, but whatever. He plans on coming by tomorrow morning with the landlord to move my shit out and check if my new room is okay. Ever get woken up by something in the middle of the night, and it really fucks you up? I went to sleep at a good time that night, in preparation for the people helping me move my stuff out. Naturally, at 3am I'm fast asleep, and then suddenly, the loud dinging of the doorbell over and over and over again. It's just constantly ringing. It's fucking deafening. And of course, it wakes me up right away. I can't even begin to tell you how scared I was. I couldn't even move. I didn't want to. After about a minute of what felt like incessant noise, complete silence. I make my way over to the front door to look through the peephole, and I see nothing. But I just know that this psycho neighbor is there. Nothing else happens that night, and I eventually get back to sleep. The next morning, still kind of shaken, but it's cool because my friends are coming around to help me out soon. I keep walking out to the front to check if they're downstairs and quickly closing my door behind me because I don't know what this woman will try if she sees me. I walk into my room, and the sliding door to my balcony is open. And there I see her for the first time. She literally wrapped her fucking body around the fence that separates our balconies whilst keeping her footing on her side and just staring at me. We stare at each other for a second and she quickly whips back around onto her side. Literally two seconds later, my doorbell rings. That's not possible. This is some demon shit. I'm so fucked. That's all that was going through my head. Thank God it turns out to be the people to help me move my stuff, and I tell them what's up and hastily move downstairs to my new room. Outside of her turning up at my new apartment one time and asking if the police had came there, I was able to avoid her from then on out. I guess the police decided to start ignoring her calls. So crazy asshole lady, let's not meet. Mom was always very protective of me when I was growing up, towing the line between being very caring and overprotective. As the shithead kid that I was, and in many ways maybe still am, I always thought it was because she didn't want me having fun. Only years later, as an adult, did I really learn where that fear came from for her. I'm never usually worried about my personal safety, I'm a woman, but based on my appearance, people usually don't bother me. I'm 5'10", built like a Clydesdale, covered in tattoos. If they do, I'm usually able to talk my way out of most situations without having to resort to fisticuffs. I'd like to think that I'm able to channel the serene confidence and the don't-fucking-come-near-me aura at the flick of a switch. Worst case scenario, I carry something small, sharp, and pointy, used mostly for opening thick packaging from things I impulse buy off of eBay when I'm in bed on my phone, half asleep. Ma, on the other hand, is a sweet petite, small in stature with fine features. I want to describe her as being dainty, but I feel it would be an insult to her years of doing strength training, working on setting personal boundaries, and finding her voice. Looking at pictures of my mom when she was little reminds me of all the hours I spent as a kid watching true crime documentaries. She had Missing Child written all over her face. Shy and small, but very obedient. Kind and eager to please. My mom was born in the early 60s and due to a less than Norman Rockwell home life, she flooded most of her time that she wasn't studying with every extracurricular activity she could get her hands on. Her favorites were acting class and track. Though small in size, she was a track star. She loved running and always said that it made her feel free. My mom has always said that she felt like prey. Throughout her childhood and teenage years, my mom endured the grave misfortune of encountering more creepy men and escaping attempted abductions than she can count on fingers and toes. So many incidents that when she talks about it, there are categories and tactics of the men that she can identify. Patterns. She describes the men rubbernecking in their cars from the other side of the street and then circling around the block so that they can pull up next to her on the sidewalk. She disdainfully refers to this Tactic as classic. There are two kinds of creeps, she says. The ones who are so brazen and bold that they try to shock you with what they say or do. And then there are those that have to physically outrun or outwit. The other kind is worse. She stares into the vacant space behind me, defocusing. I stand across from her in the kitchen as she sits at the breakfast bar, lightly trembling her eyes locked and focused on the trauma as if she's tuned out her actual vision and is rewatching a memory in her head like a movie. The other kind of creep, she says, is the one who tries to trick you. A lost dog, feigning injury or sickness to appeal to the part of most women that wants to be a caretaker. Our genetically pre-programmed maternal instinct, I'm standing in the kitchen, cleaning up and putting away supper while she's reminiscing, walking me through her trauma. I told her it was something I wanted to write about. The encounter that always terrified me the most as a kid was about my mom escaping a violent child rapist and serial killer. During the time this incident took place, my mom was in Kitsilano, staying with her older sister Carmel, and whatever loser Carmel was being beat up by that week. My mom always tells the story the same way. She was around 15 at the time, and she was squatting down on the sidewalk looking at a large bullfrog. My mom described the feeling, the one where you feel like someone is watching you. The one where you can feel someone's eyes on you as if they're a pair of clammy, unwanted hands roaming all over your body and creating some kind of perverse 3D image in their own way. My mom looks up and locks eyes with a man sitting in a blue car. He sits, smiling, examining his prey. She said his eyes were wild and his gaze was so cold-blooded and fixated that, recalling the incident decades later, produces goosebumps on the backs of her freckled arms. He was the brazen kind. No story of a lost dog. No limp. No invitations to lunch. A shark smelling blood in the water. His pupils dilated as he narrows in on his kill, I'm a rapist and I'm going to get you, he said with a low grin on his face. He laughed maniacally, lurching forward in his seat. My mom said that she felt her knees go weak with fear. Years peppered with these encounters and years of running track had instilled her with a quick reaction time for dangerous situations. She begins to move, dodging forwards and backwards in an attempt to deke him out. He's revving the engine and accelerating the car backward and forward, almost as quickly as her legs are moving, matching my mother's movements. She explodes into a sprint. This time, there's no ribbon, no trophy. This time, she can feel the finish line is her life. He follows her in his car, and she has to cut through several different backyards before she's able to get out of his line of sight. When she makes it home... To her sister's place, she explains what had happened. No one cared. No one did anything. Well, you got away. What do you want me to do? Is what they would say. Years later, in August 1981, that same face that had haunted her waking life and loomed like a ghost in her dreams was appearing everywhere she looked. Canadian serial killer Clifford Olson confesses to 11 murders. My mom instantly recognized him. Horrified. I've always been interested in true crime. I remember Googling his name when I got my own computer, finding every scrap of information I could about this monster that almost made a meal out of my mother. I remember looking at one of those composite pictures where they show photos of all of his victims in a larger image, a patchwork quilt of loss. I shuddered as I looked at these children who looked so similar to my mother, that they could have been related. She was his type. All 11 of Clifford Olson's murders took place in under two years, from 1980 to 1981. Children, ranging from the age of 9 to 17, would be abducted, raped, and murdered by either strangulation or being bludgeoned to death. He had an extensive criminal history and was arrested on August 1981 on suspicion of attempts to abduct two girls. He reached a controversial deal with authorities agreeing to confess to 11 murders and show the RCMP the location of the bodies of those not yet recovered. In return, authorities agreed that $10,000 for each victim was paid into a trust fund for his wife, Joanne, and then infant son Clifford III. His wife received $100,000 after Olson cooperated with the RCMP and the 11th body being a freebie. When Olson pleaded guilty to all these counts of murder, he was given multiple life sentences. In 2011, media reported that Olson had terminal cancer and had been transferred to a hospital in Quebec. He died on September 30th at the age of 71. To give a little background, I'm a film student in college right now, and my buddies and I are always looking for new locations to film our movies at. I make horror movies, so all the places I'm looking for and exploring are abandoned. And tonight, me and my group of friends, and there are ten of us total, decided to check out this abandoned hospital down the street from our school. They had been there before and said that it was a great spot for filming and I should check it out. Tonight was that night. So when we get out there, I have my Nikon DSLR out with a handheld LED light attached to the top of the camera to scout out the place when we get inside. I didn't film any of the encounter because I usually only film the inside of these places. But I had my camera and my light out to shine my way through. I was leading the way down this narrow path that led to these walls that we had to climb to get to the roof of the place where we would access one of the rooms to get inside of the building. Now, because I was carrying my camera and bag, I was trying to look for another way up. So I walk a little further down this narrow path, and I start noticing a lot of clothes and random shoes, cardboard boxes, lying around the area. There was even an empty sleeping bag. That's when I knew that we probably weren't alone, and we were likely going to run into someone if we made the wrong move. And boy, did we ever. One of my friends walking behind me down this path notices a door to my right. It's closed, and my guess is that it was locked and just not worth trying. But he already has his hand on the door handle and starts tugging. I look over And it barely cracks open, but something is holding it from the inside. I shine my LED on the inside, and I see a shirt tied to the inside door handle to another part of the room, acting as a lock. But my friend, being the way he is, tugs again and rips that shirt right off, and the door swings open. Inside, there's someone sleeping on a table alongside a group of terrifying-looking people sitting inside by a light in that room. They all stop and stare at us. In the short glimpse of what I got, my friend yells, Oh shit, get the fuck out of here! and slams the door. He just bolts past me. I was standing there a little shaken, almost feeling like I should apologize, but... I just follow him instead. My other eight friends are already on the roof at this point, asking what's going on, and we just run for our lives out of the area. I hear the door and the path swing open, but I couldn't look back. From there, me and my friend rendezvous back to the higher part of the area, away from the entrance leading to the hospital. There's a small gap that you could jump across to get from one of the roofs, to the building that my other friends were on. About four of them follow us and jump across, ready to get out of there. But the others stay on the roof and watch us, stuck like statues. I look at them, confused at what they're staring at, and I begin to hear this metal dragging on the concrete. I turn around, and there's a crazy-looking man maybe mid-twenties, dragging a baseball bat with nails all along the end walking towards us as he drags the bat along the concrete. My heart sinks. At this point, I turn off my light, and all that is shining is the moonlight. I keep my hand on my pocket knife, desperately trying to think of anything I can do if he starts swinging but I knew that there was no way I would come out of it alive if I tried anything. Plus, I got to take care of my camera. So he walks closer to us, and the first thing he says is, you're going to want to keep that light off. And everyone is silent. I'm shaking. He then starts circling around us as he says, you guys are never going to come back here, right? He walks past me. And sees the camera. Raises his bat, saying, And you're going to put the fucking camera away, right? I just barely say, Yeah, yeah, it's off. He looks over to my friends, watching on the roof past the gap. And he points to them. And he says, Jump. And they stand silent. The guy says again, Fucking jump across right now. Just run and jump. You'll make it. Keep in mind the gap doesn't look that bad, but the drop is fatal if you don't make the jump. And my four friends are all staring down at the drop, fearing what could happen. One of them says, I don't think I can make it. The guy replies, Run and jump or else you're going to regret it. So my friend steps back, runs, and barely makes the jump. From there, one by one, the other three make the jump across. All the while, this guy is standing right behind us with his bat, dragging it along the concrete. Once we get across, he says to us, "'You're never coming back here again, you understand?' We awkwardly apologize and run away back to our cars in the distance. I get in my car and look back at the area. He's still standing there, watching us with his bat as we sped off. Realistically, we could have probably ganged up on him as a group if anything had happened, but who knows who else was back there. Sadly, the hospital is a no-go from here on out, but I'll be looking around for some other locations. What scared me the most about all of this was how fearless and disturbed this guy looked. He definitely has seen some shit, and had undoubtedly used that bat before on someone else. He looked like a killer. Maybe he was a killer. And it was his calmness that really got to me. Definitely a lesson learned, but regardless, let's not meet again. or so before my 10th birthday, I walked to the corner store with the $5 bill and picked up a jar of ragu for my mom. On the way home, a man I'd never seen before fell in step with me and began talking. Hi, he said cheerfully. My name is Dr. Ramsey. I'm a pediatrician. Do you know what a pediatrician is? I walked along silently not replying and fervently hoping he would take that as a sign that he should leave me alone. Subtleties were not his strong suit, though. He kept right on chattering. Are your parents looking for a pediatrician for you? Of course, you're almost a big girl now. You'll be needing another kind of doctor soon, won't you? That's okay. They can still bring you to me until then. What's your name? You have beautiful hair. I was just on my way to get some suckers for the candy jar in my office. Do you like suckers? Thankfully, we were nearing my house, so I ran forward, up the steps, and into the kitchen door. I didn't know it then, but that was the beginning of a very long, very scary ordeal. It didn't take long after that for Dr. Ramsey to begin showing up. At first, it seemed benign enough at least to a kid. He would drive by nearly every day, smiling and waving. I told my mom, who said maybe it was on his way home from work. But then the phone calls began. My dad called me into the living room and sat me down. He asked me about the day that Dr. Ramsey followed me home, and if I had talked to him. He said I wasn't in trouble, but that I needed to tell him the truth. I told him... No, and he asked if I was sure. Could I be forgetting something? I told him again. He frowned, then asked, And how does he know your name? I didn't know. It turns out that's not all that he knew. He knew my sister's name as well. Pretty soon, neither my sister nor I were allowed to answer the phone. Because he called several times a day. At first, neither of us knew what he was saying. Then one night, one of my brothers told us that he was telling my parents that he was going to hurt me. Then later, my sister. Well, things got complicated after that. My dad had called the police. But as this was before there were any kind of stalking laws, there wasn't a lot that they could do. They told my parents to call back if he quote-unquote tried anything. My dad then called a friend from back in the day, who happened to be a cop. For the next month, my dad's friend would escort me to and from school. Suddenly, life as I knew it came screeching to a halt. I couldn't walk to school alone. I couldn't play outside. I couldn't walk to the Super America, which is sort of like a 7-Eleven for those who don't know. When access to me was completely denied... Things escalated. It was around this time that he began threatening my sister as well. Then one afternoon, my sister, two of my brothers, my mom and I, were in the kitchen. One of my brothers saw a glimpse of someone in the garage. They'd seen him too. Dr. Ramsey came bolting out of the garage. My brothers chasing after him. They ran all the way down to Cherokee Park where they lost him in the trees. My parents called the police again, but nothing came of it. The only information they had was a description and a name that was almost certainly fake. Well, a couple of weeks later, we woke to find our dog hanging from the side porch. She was a gorgeous, saddleback German shepherd, born the same day I was. We were all devastated. The cops said that there was no evidence that it was him, and ruled it accidental, but none of us believed that. His phone calls became more informative in the meantime. He would talk to us about who was home and who wasn't. If my brother would say my dad was home, he would tell him who was really in the house. He also would talk about the house itself, about the window in the kitchen that he could easily open with a knife from the outside, even when it was locked and about the French doors that connected the living room to the side porch, and how the lock could be finangled from the outside if he jiggled it just right. That night, my dad put in some carpenter nails at the bottom of the French doors until he could get a new lock ordered. My parents had to go to a company event for my dad's work. My older brothers were at Saints West Roller Skating Rink. My sister was on the phone with her best friend. My little brother was on the floor asleep. I was watching Devo on the midnight special with Wolfman Jack. It was late. Suddenly, the top of the French doors swung open. And in the few milliseconds before the nails at the bottom caused them to snap back, I could see his silhouette. My sister whipped the phone at the television, and we ran upstairs. About halfway up, we realized our little brother was still asleep on the living room floor. As quietly as we could, we slipped back down the stairs to get him. We all went into our bedroom and didn't turn on the light. This way, we could see outside. We watched out the window for a while, and when we didn't find him, we crept down the hall to our brother's room to look. We looked down and could see someone standing at the back door. He knocked. Loudly. What do you want? My sister asked out the window. He stepped back and said, Is this the Mercy residence? I have a pizza for delivery. Can you come to the door? She scoffed at him, declaring she was not stupid. She could see he didn't have a pizza and that she was calling the cops. He left. A short while later, My brothers returned home. We told them what had happened, and they walked around the yard watching for him. They came back in, and things settled down. By now, we'd pretty much given up calling the cops because it never helped. So we just went back in. Each of us, except my youngest brother, still asleep, carrying a knife from the kitchen just in case. Eventually, one of my brothers went into the kitchen to get a bowl of cereal as a snack. You know, that sensation you get when you can just feel someone watching you. Yeah, he had that in spades. He kept looking around the kitchen, through the doorway into the dining room, at the windows. He didn't see anything, but he could still feel eyes on him. So he went closer to the door to try and see better. The kitchen lights were reflecting on the windows of the door. It had three rows of windows. So he still couldn't see. He stepped closer, then closer again, until he was right up to the door, then cupped his hands on either side of his head so that he could see. On the other side of the windowpane was Dr. Ramsey, smiling back. He turned to yell for my olden brothers, and when he looked back again, it was gone. They went out again to look for him, but they didn't find him. The next night, we were at the table playing Crazy Eights, and my brother was restless. My sister asked him what was wrong, and he said he always felt like any minute now there would be a boom, boom, boom at the door or the window. Almost immediately after he finished this sentence, it happened. Three booms at the window right behind him. In the chaos, the two eldest ran outside, but he was already gone. A couple of weeks later, I was at school and we were outside on the playground during recess. I was swinging upside down when I saw that now familiar blue Ford Galaxy cruising by, moving slowly. There he was, smiling and waving he called my name, and I ran to the teacher and told her. The school had been told all about him, and she took me inside right away and called my mom. That same day, my mom had gotten a call from the office asking her to verify that my dad was picking me up, as he'd called to say that he was on his way. He wasn't. Not long after that, I woke up one night, thirsty. I went down to the kitchen for a drink, sitting there alone in the dark was my dad. On the table, a gun. He was tired of the police waiting until Dr. Ramsey tried something. He was tired of his children being terrorized. He was tired of being afraid every time he left for work that something would happen to us while he was gone. I sat with him for a time, watching, before he sent me back to bed. These events and many more took place over a period of around 18 months. Then, as suddenly as it began it was over. He had vanished from our lives, the phone calls, the drive-bys with the creepy waves, everything. For a long time, during and after the Dr. Ramsey days, I would have reoccurring nightmares in which I would wake up to find him standing over me as I slept. It took a long time before I felt like a kid again. I found out years later That when he was calling, Dr. Ramsey would tell my parents that he was going to rape and kill me, and later, my sister. And that there was nothing that they could do about it. I don't know what happened to him when he disappeared. I don't know if he was in a car wreck or locked in prison, maybe in a coma, but sometimes I wonder if the wait ended for my dad when he was sitting in the darkened kitchen one night. I don't know and I'm not sure I want to. Thanks for listening to season one episode five of let's not meet a true horror podcast this week you have heard man laying halfway inside my kitchen floor let's not meet by kika od when i lived in japan my neighbor really didn't like me by taylor farron the monster that almost ate my mother by emily story in vancouver canada my encounter with negan at an abandoned hospital by boy genius And finally, a retelling of Dr. Ramsey by Reddit user Sweet Mercy. There's a new email address for story submissions. Moving forward, please send all submissions to letsnotmeetstories at gmail.com. This way, I'll better be able to organize and stay up to date with all of the correspondence at the older email address. And if you already submitted your story to the old one, uh, your story will still be considered and read. Don't worry. I'll see you next week for a brand new episode of Let's Not Meet. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call. Wrap up the year with holiday cheer at the all-new Bush Gardens Christmas Celebration. Experience a winter wonderland as you walk through eight festive villages with twinkling lights, holiday decor, and entertainment. Bush Gardens Christmas Celebration is a limited capacity event. Select dates through January 3rd. Take advantage of the biggest sale of the year, going on now through November 27th. Buy one 2 Park membership, get one half off during the Black Friday sale. Make your reservation today. Restrictions apply.